Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And so Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, probably two of the most important verses in the entire Bible. And we spent our first two studies in the book of Genesis examining the evidence that's before us as we look at God's creation that points to the truth of the fact that God is the one that made it. Now, just over the past week, I've had a, an incredibly close encounter uh, with the intricacies of the human body and how all of it works together. And it's just another marvel of the evidence that God did, in fact, create, even as the Bible says that he did. Over the course of the week and having discussions with different people and, and talking to friends and, and people that we're, we're close to in our family, uh, I was hearing from one young lady whose family is going through some medical issues and they find themselves uh, right now in and out of different clinics and doctor's offices and practices seeking answers and the whole thing. And she told me that uh, about a week ago she was in a, a doctor's office with one of her kids and um, one of them had blood drawn, and they put the blood under a microscope, and they were going to show them something under it. And at the moment that they were just about to, to broadcast the picture to show, uh, one of the um, nurses that was there got up out of the room abruptly or, and, and just left the room, just left quickly. And it was a little bit off-putting and a little bit awkward. And so our friend asked and said, well, is everything Okay. And, and the, the, the doctor said, la smiled a little bit and, and laughed and said, she can't be in the room when, uh, whenever blood is put up on the screen. And she said, why? Is, is she squirmish? She said, no, 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 that's not it. It's that she refuses to believe in God and that any time she looks at blood under the microscope, she can't not believe in God. And so she always does that every time this part of the, the thing comes up, you know. And the more that you look at everything that God created, the more you recognize and realize that it is exactly as the Bible says, that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, once you get past Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the rest of the Bible is really easy. Once I recognize and realize where things came from, where origins began, then the rest of it is a piece of cake for me to understand. If I can believe 1-1... One, one, I have no problem with the rest of the Bible. For me personally, when I gave my life to the Lord Jesus, it was about 19 years ago now, I came to the realization that I believed that the things that God says in the Bible are absolutely true. And I made a decision at that time, and I think it was probably a subconscious decision that later I realized it in my mind, is that I just decided that because I'm a Christian and because I believe in Jesus as my Savior and the God of the Bible, that I personally am going to hold the conviction that every word that's contained within this book, from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation 22, is absolutely true. And that if I come across something at any time that I don't understand or that doesn't make sense or that seems preposterous or impossible that I'm going to assume that the problem is with me and not with what's being spoken to me through it. And that was a decision that I made as a, as a young believer, that I wasn't going to question what God said. I'm going to question my ability to comprehend it. 
or to wrap my mind around it or my finiteness around it. And I've never regretted that decision. It has never come back to haunt me. In fact, it's made life very simple for me because I don't have to try to figure out which parts of the Bible I can rely upon or which parts of the Bible I should obey or which parts are of God and which parts aren't. But the whole thing is of God. God has breathed every word of it. And therefore, all of it is true. And if you can get past the first verse, you'll find it very easy with the rest of the Bible to just accept what God says. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And thus the beginning of the world as we know it. There's three things that are spoken of as being created in that verse. First of all, time. It's shown by the word beginning. It's a word that denotes time. The second is space, when he says that God created the heavens. And the third is matter. And it's denoted by the word earth that's used there at the end of verse 1. Time, space, and matter, which matter is a combination of mass and energy. The three dimensions that you and I operate in in the physical world that we're a part of right now were all spoken into existence by God at the very beginning. Now, the amazing thing about time, space, and matter is that each one of those things is dependent upon the other in order for it to make sense or in order for it to exist. Time without space and matter is irrelevant. There's no need for it. Space without time and matter has no reason. And matter without time or a place for matter to exist, which would be the space, can't happen. It's impossible. And so there's this interconnection. There's a triunity or a trinity of existence, if you would, in the creation of God itself. Time, space, and matter in the very beginning. We move on from there as we come to, to verse 2. And we, we read there where it testifies that it says that after this summation statement of where it all came from, now he goes back and he begins to explain the process by which God made it. And so he says in verse 2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. He says that the earth was without form and void when God first spoke it into existence. The phrase that's used in the Hebrew is the word or words, Tohu vabohu, and that you can remember it because it rhymes. Tohu vabohu, without form or formless and empty. Now, there are some that have taken these words, tohu vabohu, or void or vain and empty, and they have come up with a theory. It's called the gap theory. And the gap theory states that there is an unknown or unspecified period of time, indefinite period of time, that exists between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis. A period of time that could be thousands of years, or even millions of years long, that existed between those two verses, or those two phrases. Now, the reason for that theory is because when people, even Christians, look at the world, and they see the sediment layers that are shown in places like the Grand Canyon, or even when you're driving down a highway and you see where they blasted through a certain area in order to keep the road from going up and down too much, and you see the sediment layers that are there. Or the fossil record that is 
shown to us in many of our textbooks and that we hear so much about of all these layers with various different fossils and organisms that have been kind of crystallized and fossilized into them and all of these things that give evidence for a vast period of time. Now, when you add up the years of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 and you just trace the genealogies and you bring it to the present day, it only provides about 6,000 years, literal years, from the time of Genesis 1-1 to the present day that we live in now. And there are many that have said, well, there's no way that all of that, all of those layers, all of that geology that's fossilized into that record could have possibly happened in a 6,000-year period of time. And so somewhere there's an unaccounted for indefinite time that we need to place somewhere. And the place they found for it is between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2. Well, the support that even Christians have found for this gap theory comes out of a verse in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, where God, speaking in the context of his creation, his creative power, and his creative purpose in making the world, he says there that he did not create the world in vain. It says that in Genesis 45, 18. And the same Hebrew word is used, tohu vabohu. That is, that God said, I did not make it tohu vabohu, or formless and void, or without purpose and empty. And so they've said, aha, okay, see, God even said that he didn't make it formless and void. So something had to happen between verse 1 and verse 2 that made it without form and void, And thus, now we have the millions of years that we need for the geological column and the sedimentary layers and all of those things uh, that we have. Now, here's the problem with the gap theory. At least in the context of the geological column and the answer that the gap theory would provide for it. There were no creatures to die and fossilize in the geological column until the fifth day of creation. And so it's impossible that trilobites and, you know, crabs and primitive things, primates, and then more developed creatures that are fossilized, it's impossible that they would be fossilized because they didn't exist between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1 verse 2. The other problem with that gap theory and what it is, is that there was no death in the world until after Adam sinned. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. God said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And there was no death. Romans chapter 5 tells us that death passed on all from Adam. Adam is the culprit that brought death into the world. So it's impossible that things were chaotically destroyed that first of all didn't exist. And second of all, were subject to a plight that wasn't even in the world at the time. And thus that version of the gap theory doesn't hold any credence because of what we know of the truth of God's word. Well, there's another variation of the gap theory. And what that says is that, no, that's not what happened. It wasn't millions of years in the formation of geological columns and all that kind of thing. But rather, there was a period of time there, and that's the time that Satan fell. Jesus said to his disciples when they returned from their short-term mission And they reported about how the demons were subject to them and and they were excited about uh, the power that Jesus had given them and the fruit they'd borne and all. 
And Jesus warning them about the dangers of spiritual pride, he said, beware. He said, for I saw Satan cast into the earth like lightning. He testifies of being there when Satan fell, and he says that he was cast into the earth. Now, there's a version of the gap theory that supposes that that event, Satan's fall and being cast into the earth, happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And thus, when Satan and one-third of the angels that fell with him were cast into the earth, that the earth was at that time then made without form and void. That the catastrophe of his casting in is what brought the, the formless void and the darkness that it testifies of in verses uh, 2 and on from there. Now, there's a problem with that. And the problem is that when you read Ezekiel chapter 28, it describes Satan. And that's one of the two chapters that really help us understand who Satan is. One is Isaiah 14, and the other is Ezekiel 28. And in Ezekiel 28, it describes Satan, listen, in a pre-fallen condition, while he was still glorified, occupying the place of his original appointment. And he was, listen, in the Garden of Eden. God testifies and said, you were in Eden, in a pre-fallen condition. So it's impossible, comparing scripture with scripture, that the fall of Satan happened between verses 1 and verse 2. So what's the answer concerning the gap theory and what happened between verse 1 and verse 2? Why was the earth tohu vabohu? Do you know why I think, and I could be wrong, I was not there. I think it was because God first spoke things into existence and he had not yet ordered the, the world in the way that he intended to during the six days of creation. And thus he's getting ready now to organize what he has spoken into a primitive existence. That's the answer. The simple clear, most plain reading of the scripture is usually the most accurate and reliable record of it. Sometimes I wish people would just leave the word of God alone, don't you? Just take it for what it says. It's what God said. And if God, in the way that he first spoke things into, to, into existence and then the way he ordered them, if he designed that in the process of things, layers of sediment were laid that showed that the earth looked like it was older, then so be it. We also read, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, about a worldwide flood that changed the entire face and scope of the planet, what it looked like. And it could be that all of those layers that people see and wonder and ask about were not formed by a little bit of water over a long period of time, but rather by a large quantity of water over a very short period of time. The bottom line is that for many of these things, we'll have to wait until we get to heaven to find out the answer. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. It's a great verse. You'll do well to remember it. It says that the secret things belong unto the Lord but the things which are revealed are for us and for our children. There are some things, did I get that right, by the way? I didn't look that one up. It is, right? Yes, <laughs> that's it. You know. There are some things that we're just not going to know until we get to heaven. But here's the good news. It doesn't matter. There are credible and competent Bible scholars that believe in the gap theory. And they could be right, and I could be wrong. 
And when we get to heaven, we'll find out who was. And if they were right and I was wrong, I will congratulate them. And I will say, man, you were so much smarter than I was when it came to pulling these things apart and tying it all together. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change the facts of our salvation or the tenets of our faith or what makes a Christian a Christian one little bit. My choice, take the word of God literally. And thus, he says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The word darkness means the total absence of light. It also implies chaos in the absence of order. There was no order in that time. And it says that that darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, the face of something is the medium of its expression. Which means that whatever visible component there was of the earth at that time, that it was chaotic and uninterpretable. That it was just darkness. But not only did it extend upon the face of what was visible, but it was also upon the deep. And the word deep implies the depths or the deep places or that which was under the surface. And thus the entire earth, when God first spoke it into existence, was nothing but a mass of mixed chaotic darkness. That's what existed when God first spoke it into existence. But then, on that first day, it tells us also in verse 2 at the end that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, this is the first mention in the Bible of the Spirit of God, or what we would refer to or call the person of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that God is one And yet he is existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And that all three of them are unified in one and that they are God and that God is one. And thus we see that the Holy Spirit played a role in creation just like the Father and the Son. You say, well, what role did Jesus play in the creative act? Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 tells us clearly that it was Jesus who created all things. And thus Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.16 says that by him all things exist. And here in verse 2, it says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And thus we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all intricately involved in the creative act. It says that the Spirit moved upon the face of the deep or upon the face of the waters. The word moved is the word that you would use to describe what a mother hen does when she's brooding over her hatch, seeking to bring them forth into the world. There was an energizing that was taking place. God the Holy Spirit was hovering, brooding over the world, filling it with energy and the capacity and everything that it would need for it to become what God intended it to be. Fueling it, if you would, with all of the life, the zoe, the energy that would thus come forward when God first spoke what he's about to in verse 3. And it says that God said, let there be light and there was light. It's the first instance or mention of the word of God in the Bible. The first time that God says anything. And before we even take note of what God said, it's amazing to me that we recognize that the word of God was with power. That what God said immediately came to pass even as he said it. God said, light be, 
and light was. He said it, it happened. And what's amazing to me is that will become the precursor of what God's word does every time he speaks it from then all the way into eternity, both past and present. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God will not return void, but it will accomplish what God pleases and it will prosper in the thing whereunto he sends it. When the angel Gabriel brought the message to young Mary that she would give birth, having never been with a man, she questioned and said, how are these things possible? And Gabriel's reply to Mary when she asked that question, and he said that with God, nothing shall be impossible. And literally in the Greek, it says that not one word is without power. With God, not one word is without power. And thus, when God speaks, what God says happens every time. And that gives me great hope when I consider that what I'm holding in my hand is the very word of God itself. That all of the promises contained, all of the ways that are revealed, all of the facets and intricacies of his person that are shown to me here, that every bit of it is absolutely true and that all of those things are absolutely certain to come to pass within my life. And the track record of God's faithfulness and ability is shown to us right here at the very beginning. God said, light be, and literally it says that light was. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness in that time. Now, the first thing that was manifested when God spoke was light. And oftentimes when we think of light, we think of it in the realm of the physical, that which enables us to see, the light of the sun or of the stars. But you'll notice that the sun and the stars don't come into existence until day four. And thus the existence or even the the properties or characteristics of light transcend physical light as we know it. It means more than just the physical light that you and I understand. Now, it certainly means that, and it is that. But light in the Bible goes beyond just the capacity of seeing. Light also carries with it in the Bible a spiritual connotation or insinuation. Light spiritually speaks of truth and understanding and revelation. And what's being shown to us here is that God made truth and understanding and revelation to be a part of what exists within the planet. When he said, let there be light, it means that he provided a way whereby we could have answers and understanding and know where we're going, where we've come from. That the great mysteries of life and the questions that we have don't have to remain unanswered, but there are answers for those things. God has provided spiritual light, truth, and understanding. It also has a moral connotation to it. Jesus would say in John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, that light is moral. He would say that light is come into the world, that this is the reason for the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that hates the light or does evil, or does evil, hates the light and won't come into it. And so light has a moral attachment to it as well. Light is an amazing thing when you think about the way it's used in the scripture. When Moses and the children of Israel were in Egypt, one of the plagues that came upon Egypt is that darkness fell upon the whole land. And the Bible tells us that it was a darkness that could be felt. 
Now, we don't typically think of light and dark as something that you can feel. But spiritual darkness or moral darkness has a quality and a property that can go beyond the eyes and it can get into the soul and you can actually feel the darkness. Sometimes we all experience and know what that's like. We'll say to one another as we're just talking, counseling or or, or conversating, we'll say, I'm in a very dark place right now. Please pray for me. And if you're a Christian here, you know exactly what I'm talking about, to be in a, a dark place. You're not speaking that there's physical darkness, but you know that inside there's a darkness. It's beyond what's describable with physical light. Jesus would say in his teaching concerning where we fix our eyes, he would say if we set our eyes upon true things and right things, he would say that if our eye is light, then our whole body will be full of light. But he says that if our eyes are filled with darkness, then our whole body will be filled with darkness. So light in that context speaks of something totally different than just looking into the light of something. But that is that if our eyes are on the right things, truth, God, heaven, eternity, salvation, holiness, righteousness, the virtues, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, if our eyes are on that, then our whole body is going to be filled with light. It's going to reflect in our personality and our being. But if our eyes are on dark things, If we're centered on earthly things, worldly things, if we're given to sinful things, then it's going to reflect in our body and there's going to be a darkness that's in us. It's a connotation that goes beyond physical light. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus brought Peter, James, and John, and it says that he was transformed or transfigured and that he began to shine and radiate brighter than the noonday sun, so much so that they couldn't even look at him because he was so bright. What was happening is that everything that was on the inside of Jesus Christ was all of a sudden being revealed and being brought out on the outside. And they could recognize and see what was there. I've often read that passage and thought, what would happen to us if all of a sudden everything on the inside of us was exposed and shown for what it was? It certainly wouldn't be the same picture. But light has a very different or or, um, transcending meaning than just the, the, the element of physical light. But it existed in the beginning. And it tells us there that God said that it was good and that he divided the light from the darkness. And I want you to mark that in your Bible, that God divided the light from the darkness. Because what it tells us and what it means is that God knew and and God Um, ordained that from the very beginning there would be both light and darkness in the world in which we live. From the very foundation all the way until the very end, both of those entities will exist. There's a theology or a belief that goes around in Christian circles that's called dominion theology. And what dominion theology teaches is that we're to fill the earth with disciples And that when we spread the message of the gospel and convert the whole planet so that there's no more sinners and no more sin, then we've prepared the way for Jesus to return. Well, this refutes that right here at the very beginning. Because God saw that there was light and darkness from the very beginning, and it will continue that way until the end. Jesus said there is wheat and there are tares. The dragnet picks up things good and things bad. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust. And thus the world will be filled with both all the way through until the end. And so God divided the light from the darkness. And he called the light day and the darkness he called night. And then the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, 
Verse 5 gives to us the first mention of language as we know it. It says that God called the light day and the darkness he called light. And it's an amazing thing to consider the, the power and the gift that human language is. I mean, have you ever stopped to think about for one minute just how amazing it is that you and I can communicate with words? I mean, just think for one moment that you, in your mind, that you can see something or think something or formulate a thought. And then almost subconsciously, you can associate that thought with pictures and time and people and places. And then you can understand it and comprehend it. And then you can come up with words that are defined already in your mind. And then you can open your mouth and speak those words out. And you can form a sentence that communicates all of those things to someone else. And then those words go out there. They're in the middle of thin air. They go in someone else's ear. They're heard in real time. They're understood. They're associated with something. They're defined. They're untangled. They then connect on an invisible level with the person that you're speaking with to understand the things that you're talking about. And then you repeat the process. You think of things. Words come up. You define them. You connect them. You feel them with emotion. Then you spread. I mean, it's an amazing thing to consider the medium of human language. And yet we see that it was instituted by God. He called the light day. And then later on, he's going to give Adam part of the responsibility of coming up with Webster's dictionary (laughs) when he gets to name the animals and all the various different things that come on. But the gift of language given by God that something could be called something. And then he closes this first day by saying that there was evening and there was morning the first day. There are some, again, and this is the last um, one of these that we'll do. The pace picks up real quick after this. You're going to be amazed. We've got to talk about this while we're here. It says that there was evening and there was morning the first day. Amen. There are some that hold what is called the day-age theory. And again, it's, an, it's, a, um, it's a way to try to make excuse for or provide for the time that people think that the the world existed more than the 6,000 years that we add up as we go through the the text and all. And what they say is that a day when God created the world in six days, that they weren't literal days, but each day represents an age or an undisclosed period of time. That it was a certain length of time, maybe even as much as 1,000 years or maybe even more. And their support for that theory is that they say that the Bible sometimes uses the word day to talk about a period that is not just a 24-hour period. So when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, it's not talking about a physical day. It's talking about a span of time, seven years when God does what he's going to do on the earth. The Bible talks about Abraham's day. Not speaking of a particular day in Abraham's life, but rather the span of his life and the time that he was on the earth. And so they'll say that because the Bible uses the word day to depict a period more than just 24 hours, then we could also apply that here and say that a day is not simply a day. The problem with that theory is this, is that the context in which the word day is used is what defines what the word day means. So when we talk about the day of the Lord, the context of that speech is speaking of a period that we know to be more than one physical day. When we talk about the day of Abraham, we know that the context of that use is speaking of a period of time that's more than a physical day. 
But here, when God says that evening and morning were the first day, he goes out of his way to set forth before us that the context and use of the word day is speaking of a 24-hour period of time. That there was evening and there was morning the first day. And thus, as the Bible teaches it, God created the world in six literal days Thus, on the first day, God spoke light into existence, separated from the darkness, and then he said, good night. And the evening and the morning came to a close that first day. Well, then we move on to the second day in verse 6. And it says that God said, let there be a firmament or an expanse, the visible arch of the sky is what we're talking about, in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. So here's what God did in the very beginning when he first created the the first heaven or the earth's atmosphere as we know it. He took the waters that covered the face of the whole planet and he cut them in half. He made a cross section. And he raised up the top half of that water blanket and he brought it up over the earth and he separated it with a mass of air from the waters that were on the surface of the earth thus creating the expanse of the sky as we know it so in the day that god first created the world there was both waters at the base at the low point of the world and there was also a canopy of water that existed above the earth's atmosphere that encapsulated the earth in water Now, we know that that capsule of water no longer exists in the day that we live in right now. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, actually, is that right? I don't know why I just got my check engine light that went on that says that's no. It's actually chapter 2, verse 5. It says that every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew for the Lord God, listen, had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. And thus when God first created the world, it was made much different than the world that you and I interact with today. And there was no rain in that time. There was a water canopy that existed around the face of the entire planet. And what that would do is it would provide an equivalent climate that would surround the world in every part of it from the north pole even to the south and thus the entire world would be a comfortable even temperature there would be vegetation that would grow both on the north and the south pole and the whole world would be like one giant greenhouse it was just this beautiful protection that kept out the harmful rays of the sun and just kept the world in a nice place but by the time we come to genesis chapter 6 And the waters of the flood came upon the world. The Bible tells us there that when that happened, that Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, it tells us that the windows of the heavens were opened and the waters of the flood prevailed upon the earth. And thus when the flood came in the days of Noah, God just poked some holes and he let that thing just drain out onto the earth And it was part of the water that flooded the earth at that time. It had never rained prior to that. And once those waters were depleted, that water canopy no longer existed. And thus the climate of the earth changed at that time. Everything of the earth changed. But in the beginning, God separated the waters from the waters. And it was so. And so God called the firmament heaven, verse 8. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Then the third day. 
And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good, and evening and morning were the third day. And so on the third day, we have the creation of land, grass, shrubs, trees with their seed and with their fruit, And what we see is the first mention of life here as we come into this day. And the first life was in the form of plant life or vegetation. And God made it to be self-sustaining and reproductive according to its own kind. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, when you go outside and you look at the the trees or you walk through the field and you see the various, um, you know, the wheat fields and and weeds and wildflowers and grasses and uh, and then the shrubs and, and, and herbs that God made and the trees of varying sizes and different climates that provide for different vegetative um, life support and all that kind of, it's an amazing thing to consider the vastness of the creation of God in the plant kingdom that he's made and the ability of those plants to reproduce themselves. You ever gone for a walk in the woods and you have those little, those little burrs attach themselves to you? That's the seed of that plant propagating itself. It found a ride in you so that you would look down while you're walking and go, you know what? You'd start picking those things off and flicking them into the woods and reseeding that plant that attached those Velcro burrs to you. Or you look in the early part of the springtime when the maple trees are shedding their seeds and you watch the maple copters. And you watch kids go around and they gather handfuls of these things and then they get up on the highest place they can and they just throw those things up in the air and you just see a cloud of maple copters just finding their way into the ground and propagating the seed according to the way that God made them. Or again, a child will go out in the field and just pick a whole handful of dandelions that have gone to seed and they have that big pillow top form on them. And they'll stand in the summer breeze and just... and watch the seed just fly off of those stalks as they bend in the wind. Other kids, you know, not as gracious out on the baseball field, pick those dandelions and they say, Mama had a baby and her head popped off, you know, and and they just letting the thing in in either way, but the thing just seeding itself the way that God made and provided for it or parachuting to the ground in the way that they do or the acorns that fall from the oak trees. And then the squirrels and chipmunks come up and just shove like seven of them in their cheeks, you know, and you just see these things with these massive, and then they go and they dig a hole in the ground and they bury it in the ground and they walk away and forget that they put it there. Because so, their mouths are bigger than their brains, you know? <laughs> and the oak tree seeds itself, and all of a sudden you have the reproductive life in the whole thing. Or the way that the berries, the blackberries and the raspberries, they grow on their shrubs, and the raccoons and the black bears, they come and they eat the berries until they're glutted, and they go into their den and they fall asleep. And, and then they wake up and they go outside and they excrete. And all the seeds from those berries that they ate can survive the digestive tract of these animals. And the bears help 
repopulate and reseed these things that have been done there. This area that we live in is overgrown with jewel weed. You ever go out and see if anybody knows what the jewel weed is, you know? And there are these little orange, I think they're orange, I'm colorblind, but they look orange to me, you know? And they're these orange little flowers, but if you get them before the flower buds, there's these little tiny pods, they're about this big, you know? And they're spring-loaded, and if you just go up and you see those little pods, and you just touch them, just touch them before they, and, and all you gotta do is just the tiniest little touch, they go, and they explode, and all the seed, just the juice in the seed just goes everywhere. And you just look at the little plant, you find and you show the kids, you're like, watch this. And they go, I got one, Dad. And, and here we're popping the jewel weed, and the seed is just springing forth. You know? All the creative act and power of God, and the way that he made everything that he made. I can't imagine, personally, going out for a walk in the woods or, or somewhere in God's creation and seeing all of, all of that that he has made and the, the majesty of it, the amazement and the smells of it and, the, and just being there. I can't imagine going out in that and not knowing who to thank for providing that. And I feel sorry for these people that I see on the trails, they're hiking or they go places and they don't know the Lord and they're out there and, they're, and they don't know who to thank. And they're not able to fellowship with the creator of it all and walk with him in it and rejoice with him in it, in the things that he has made. Three times in these verses, God goes out of his way to tell us that he made these things to reproduce according to their kind. Meaning that God is the one that has determined the boundaries of what a seed that comes from a particular organism can produce. And his boundary is that the seed of an organism cannot produce something other than a part or, or, or an expression of that specific species itself. He set that boundary. And thus, we can see within a species of oak tree or a species of conifer or a species of Sunflower, we could see changes within that species, differences in the size of those flowers or stalks or trunks or trees or the shape of its bark. But according to God's boundary, an oak tree is always going to be an oak tree. And jewel weed is always going to be jewel weed. And an acorn is always going to be an acorn. And it's never going to jump from one species to the next. And God goes out of his way, whether it be in the plant kingdom that we look at here, or the animal kingdom or the kingdom of man that we look at when we get into the days five and six. God is the one that made it to be what it is. It didn't come as a chance of evolution. It came by the direct, intent, creative powers of God. He made it to be what it is, and he says that it was good. Sometimes um, I get ambitious with my hands, and I'll create something at my house, you know, uh, for my wife usually, or just something that, you know, whatever. And sometimes I'll, I'll make something and just get an idea and go for it and something outrageous. And I'll look at the thing and I'll look at it and I'll just say to myself, man, that is good. That just came out so good, you know. But what I'm really thinking is I can't wait for my wife to tell me how good this is. You know, I can't wait for her to see it to show it and just see the look on her face, you know, and the whole thing. We, I, I put in for her uh, um, on our kitchen ceiling, I put in this, like, uh, cedar lattice. She wanted to, like, weave um, these vines, you know, but I didn't tell her I was doing it, and I did it on her birthday. And for the weeks leading up to it, I built all the parts, 
And then when she went out on her birthday morning, I stayed home and, and I put this thing in. And the kids helped me and, and was able to just put in this whole thing. And then I came to work and she came home and I wasn't there. But my son had the little iPod that the kids used, the video iPod, and he was recording when she came in so that I'd get to see her expression. And she literally came in and she goes, she, go, she looked around and then she looked up and when she looked up, she just dropped everything that was in her hand and she gasped. And she just went, oh, who did this? You know, and it, it is the most priceless thing for me to have to be able to see her reaction to that creation that was there on the ceiling when she came home. And I imagine that when God saw this and he says that it's good, he's not going, man, I'm good. <laughs> Today was good. He knew what he was doing was good. But he was thinking about you. He was thinking about what it'd be like for you to walk and breathe in the morning and smell that air. He was thinking about what it'd be like for you in the early part of June to walk down, down a road or down a path when the wild roses are blooming and for all of that to hit your olfactory senses all at once and you just go, oh my Lord, you're outstanding. What you make, what you create, who you are, it's beyond anything, Lord. That's what he had in mind. And for us to be able to give that to him is such a priceless gift in his mind to rejoice in the works of his hands. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the light or the day from the night. And let them be for signs, that word means signals, and for seasons, appointed times, and also for days and for years, for time, for the keeping of time. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and evening and morning were the fourth day. And so on the fourth day, now we come to the part where God creates the lights, the sun and the moon and the stars that he created for signs and signals and appointed times and the keeping of time and the measurement of time. And thus the great star, the sun to rule the day and the lesser one to rule the night. And God set those things so. And then God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly. And so the fifth day, marine and, and terrestrial uh, animals Abundantly, the moving creature that has life and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moves upon the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and every creeping thing and beast of the earth. Beast is just King James for the animals, the animal kingdom after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and every living thing that creeps upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And so on day five, God creates the animal kingdom and the animal life. And then on day six, verse 26, God said, let us 
make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And thus now God creates man, and he says there, when he says that God created man, he says, let us create man in our image. Now, remarkable thing, you say, who is the us that God is speaking of there? Is he talking to the angels? Who is he talking to? No, he's talking to himself. We've already seen that when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that the word is Elohim. It's God, singular, yet in the plural form. This is a conversation within the Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they say, let us make man in our image. Well, what does it mean that man is made in the image of God? Does it mean that God has two hands and ten fingers and two eyes and and a head full of hair and he's extremely handsome and his body is just the sum of perfection that we all chase after? You know, is that what it means? No, he says, let us, Elohim, triune, let us make man in our image. Well, what does that mean? Well, as God is triune, man also is triune. We are not just body, that is the physical of our flesh. But we are body, we are soul, that is the seat of our emotion, our capacity to think and reason and feel. And we are also spirit, which means that we, uniquely amongst all of the creation of God, have the potential and the ability to be in a relationship and communion with God Almighty. Because we are made body, soul, and spirit, or at least spiritually potentialed, we are in God's image like that, and we are unique from all other creation of God. We are aware of him. We are aware of spiritual things. We have a capacity to relate to him. Now, the Bible tells us that God is invisible and that no man has seen him at any time. And you could make the case that man also is invisible. We are, in fact, invisible. And what I mean by that is that the part of you that makes you you is not your physical body. And the proof of that is that someday you're going to leave this earth and you're going to leave that body behind. And when you do, you will be invisible. You will not go in the form of a body. You will leave this world with less than you brought into it. Because when you came in, you came with a body. But when you leave, you will leave without one. And thus our body is just a medium of expression whereby the soul and the spirit can be expressed in a physical and tangible way. But when our body dies, our soul and our spirit live on, and God has prepared for us a new body eternal in the heavens that we will occupy after the fact. But we're made in the image of God, meaning that we have the triune nature and that we're able to to, to relate to God in the way that we do. The Bible also says here that man was made to have dominion over the earth. David, in writing Psalm chapter 8, reiterates this and he says that you set man over the works of your hands and as God says here in Genesis and as David said in Psalm chapter 8 we were made to have dominion over this planet but there's a problem Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that we do not yet see all things under him meaning that right now though we were made to have dominion we do not have dominion why don't we have dominion Because we sold it to Satan when Adam sinned. 
The Bible says that to whoever you yield yourselves, the servant to obey, his servants you are, to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, whether of sin unto death or righteousness unto life. And when Adam yielded to the suggestion of Satan that he should partake of the tree that God said not to, he yielded the dominion that he was given and he lost it. And Satan was quick to grab it and pick it up. It's a study for another time. We'll talk about it when we get into the fall of man. But if you want to know what it would have looked like had that not happened, you need look no further than Jesus Christ himself. And what you see in Jesus is you see a man who had dominion over the earth that he inhabited. He walked on water, was not a slave to the gravitational pull or the scientific law that water is unstable. He was over it. He had dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air. He could multiply them at his will. He had dominion over sickness and disease and could rebuke it and heal it in an instant. He had dominion over the spiritual realm and he could command a spirit to come out of a man and to do what it was that he wanted it to do. He had dominion in every way, shape, and form. That was the dominion, that is the dominion that God intended man to have, but yet we see that man presently does not occupy and enjoy that dominion. Satan is such a liar and a thief, isn't he? He promised to Eve enlightenment, wisdom, and understanding. And hope he gave it to her. But he left her and us with less than what we had before we had the thing that he promised. That's what he always does. When Satan promises you something, even if he delivers on the promise, be rest assured that he will leave you with less on the other side than what you started with beforehand. He is such a liar, such a crook. It says also, as we, before we move on from here in verse 27, that God created man, male and female created he them. This is anticipatory. Male and female did not exist yet in the way that we know them. It was only man when God first created Adam. But I want you to mark this and highlight it. That God created the female on day six. He did not create the female later. It wasn't an afterthought. And so God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree and the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed to you. It shall be for food and to every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air and to every living thing that creeps upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And then verse 31 is God's summary statement of the entire creative process, that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So up to this time, it is good, it is good, it is good. Here God looks at the whole thing and he says, it is very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The worship team can come as we close out our, our service tonight and our study. And as they're making their way, the Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God says, I am the Lord, I change not. He is absolutely and always the same. And the Bible teaches us that every soul that God has created, every person that God has made, was made from the very beginning. And that God knows who they are. I want you to think about this for just one minute, a thought that I'll leave you with at the end of this study on God's creation. 
is that when every life comes into this world, we come into this world without form and void. We're born into the world. We come in as babies. I've seen it happen with all five of my kids, and they are without form and void. They got nothing. And then what happens is that there's this brooding that takes place in their life. And that's all of us. We come into the world, and we've got nothing. We're spiritually in the dark. We're without God. We're alienated. We're separated from him. We're groping for sense, and there is no sense. Our lives are just chaos. We grow up, we go through our toddler years, we come into our teenage years, and there's no sense. We don't know what we're doing. We're wandering this way and that way, and we're waiting to know what it is. What was I made for? I'm just this swirling mass of nothing. But all the while, the Spirit of God is moving upon every life. The Bible says that the Spirit of God dwells with us, and God is constantly knocking on every human heart. He's saying, listen, there's life, there's answers, there's reason." You're not an accident. This isn't an accident. This isn't a coincidence. There's something. Turn to me. You're dying in your sins. You're, you're dying in it. And he's brooding over that life, waiting for the time when we'll open up our hearts and our lives to him to let him in. And then the day comes that we say, okay, God, I surrender. Come into my life. I want to be yours. And at that point, God speaks and he says, light be. And light is. And light comes into us. And if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about when Jesus Christ comes into your life. And all of a sudden, everything that you were made for, the swirlings of the chaos, the sediment layers, whatever they were, all of it begins to make sense. Things begin to get ordered. The light is separated from the darkness. You know this is good and this is bad. I walk here. This is ground and earth. That's sea. I stay away from that. That's beginning to make sense to me. I'm beginning to see the signs and signals and seasons of God. I'm learning how to hear his voice. I'm comprehending who he is. He's recreating me like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when it says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And and, and life is, is beginning to make sense. God is forming me. He's forging a new spirit. And then, then as he builds this new creation, now He's made a way. He's prepared a place for man, for the last Adam, for Jesus Christ to come inside. A place for Jesus to dwell and for Jesus to have dominion. And for me to walk with him in communion and to say, you're the Lord, I'm the servant. You are God, creator. I am created. I am nothing. And when God looks at that life, the life that's been completed by Christ, turned right side up, made whole, and that Jesus has dominion over that life, God looks at it and he says, that is very good. Because that's the intent of God for every single one of us. And if you're in that place here tonight, then God's will and intent for you is and is happening that he has given you life and that more abundantly. And if not, I would implore you tonight, come into that place and know Jesus Christ personally. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us the the truth of it and that in, in it you've revealed your heart and your will for our lives as well. So help us, Lord. Give us understanding. And I pray, Lord, tonight that we would just know Jesus in a greater way. Pray for any that are here that don't know you personally. Lord, that you would bring them into that personal relationship and expression of you. So thank you for your truth. Go with us. Walk with us. Fill us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.